Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Silent Giants podcast. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Before we get started on this week's interview... I just want to share some things I've been working on. Besides hosting the show, some of you may be aware that I'm a rapper and songwriter. But today, I'd like to share with you a song that I recently wrote for one of my dear friends, Sinead, called Lost in the Wild. Sinead is a super talented artist based here in New York City, and I'm a big fan of her and her music. The song Lost in the Wild, which you're going to hear in just a little bit, is produced by Richie Quake and my brother Matt FX, who you may know from the second episode of the podcast. Okay, I'm going to shut up for now. Here's a clip of Sinead's newest single, Lost in the Wild, produced by Richie Quake and my brother Matt FX. I'm an animal, bet you think you're controlling me, god damn it wrong. I broke out my cage tonight, I'm taking off from you. Now I've hit the ground, don't try coming round, don't surrender. Sinead's newest single, Lost in the Wild, produced by Richie Quake and Matt FX, and written by your boy, Corey Cambridge. Lost in the Wild is now available on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you listen to your favorite music these days. Now, on to the newest episode of Silent Giants, with special guest Mike Parker, the silent giant behind Nike's Air Force One. So what happened was, the other thing, too, that happened is at the time... Do you remember Big Tigger? Of course. Big yeah, Tigger, BT. The, the, the basement. Yeah, of course. So, got it placed on Big Tigger for the basement. And he started, like, talking about the Puerto Rican Air Force One. He's like, yo, I got these dope, da, 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 da. And then after that, it was, it was crazy. So, the shoe dropped. The 3,000 just blew out. It was crazy, 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 crazy. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. 
keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Michael Parker, the silent giant behind Nike's Air Force One sneaker. As product marketing manager of limited editions at Nike, Michael is responsible for making the Air Force One the highest revenue grossing sneaker of all time. In this interview, Michael shares his background, how he ended up working for Nike, making the Air Force One the number one selling sneaker of all time, and his move over to Under Armour, where he signed Steph Curry. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the silent giant, my friend, Mike Parker. Can you hear yourself? How you feel? I feel good. I only hear it on one side. Though. Yeah, because we are me in stereo. Oh, okay. So it goes back and forth. Like, yeah, so you hear me on one side, you hear me on the other side. Oh, gotcha. No one gotcha, the mixing gotcha. is gonna be, it won't be like that <laughs> in, in the mixing. Gotcha, gotcha. Now that I've figured this out, I am I'm feeling feeling good. My man, Mike Parker, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great, man. God is good. God I'm alive, is good. And I'm here with you and I, I appreciate it. Not dude, I appreciate you. <laughs> You are you are you are a nice guy. You're even courteous over email. Like, some people are just hit you with the, the two sentence joints. Be there, got you. You, you know, I've always uh, been cognizant of that with emails, man. Like I, I like you know interaction, like act like you're a person. Yeah. So I, I try to humanize it a little bit. So that's just that's maybe just an individual thing. I mean, it, you know, it's it's just a, it's just a nice touch. It lets me know like off the bat, oh, it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> like. Uh, this is this is this is stress free via email. No doubt, no doubt. So I mean, the conversation game's got to be tight. Well, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. I so far, it, so good. I, listen, you know, <laughs> I I like to do my thing. I like to do my thing. I told you earlier, you're the you're the Ray A. Croc, the Ray A. Croc <laughs> of the sneaker game. I like that. I've never heard that uh, phrase in that way, but when we discussed it, it, it makes a lot of sense because, uh, yeah, I, I I didn't invent the Air Force One. Yeah. Um, However, I've had my hand on it, and I like to think I've made an impact on that on that shoe and for sure. So, um, so yeah, so so although I don't I didn't design it, but I think I made it more popular. Um, hey, I think that's I, time, I, I think so. the Ray Kroc <laughs> analogy. For those who don't know who Ray Kroc is, he's the the I guess now founder of McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the man-made founder. Exactly. He, he kind of positioned himself. <laughs> uh, I, I I guess. Yeah, yeah. But he he took McDonald's and he didn't make the burger. He didn't start the French franchise. Nope. He nope. He just saw the marketing potential behind it and pushed it to the company we know today to the next level. Exactly. And then we have Mike Parker. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, that's that's saying a lot. That guy was so over a billion. There, I can't say. Uh, but sold there's, over parallels. <laughs> there's parallels. There's parallels. There are there were another pairs of shoes that were sold. I mean, yeah, it, it was it was fun. I mean, I was like my. One of my first jobs uh, at Nike, I mean, I started as an, an, an Eakin, which is an entry-level position at Nike where you learn everything. And then as my career kind of advanced, I got into sales, then I did a little basketball apparel product, actually created the Battlegrounds mm-hmm. concept. Yep. I'm not sure if you're familiar yep. with that. Uh, for sure, for sure. I've done my research. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Battlegrounds. I was, you know, Because what, what does the story start for you? Like, where, where are you from? I'm from New York City. Okay, where, where about in Brooklyn? Um, and, and, no, not and, Brooklyn. I'm, well, I'm, see, see, I'm, Upper West Side. Upper West Side. Upper West Side. Okay. I, I have to say that because most New Yorkers, they'll, they'll see, if you're not from New York and people ask you where you're from, I, I, I could say, like, oh, I'm from Harlem or whatever, because people know Harlem. Right. But if you're a New Yorker, 
They'd be like, no, 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 no. You're not from Harlem, Mike. You're from the Upper West Side. So, so what, what classifies the Upper West Side technically? So anything below 100th Street, 100, between like 100th Street and 70, actually maybe 60th and like Broadway okay. on the West Side, Amsterdam. So, so anyway. Has, has the Upper West always been like bougie? Well, that's what I'm saying. So that's, that's a misnomer. Like okay. when I grew up, it wasn't bougie. It was, you know, we had the projects. We had things popping off. But over time now, I mean, Upper West Side, it's, it's very nice. Are you there now? No, no, no. I live in Brooklyn now. Oh, oh but my mom, there you go. But my there mom still lives up in Upper West Side. Hey, so. I can tell a Brooklyn cat. <laughs> I can tell. There's something about you where, the, where you walk. <laughs> where, where, where in BK? I'm in Best-Eye. Best-Eye? Yeah. Best that's that's like my guy. That's where I'm at. Oh, man. I love BK. I, like, listen, I, I always say I was raised in Manhattan in New York, but I fell in love with BK. Yeah, you know for what sure. I mean? So it's, it's a special place. I was raised in VA. But hey, I call BK home. Call BK home. And so, how did you? Uh, uh, what was your like upbringing like as far as school? Were you like a good student? Did you enjoy school? Or you know something? I was a hard worker. That's what I'll say. I, I always say like elementary school was a that was a pivotal moment for me because like in my up until fourth grade, I honestly say I, I struggled in school. I worked hard, but like it just didn't come to me. Yeah. And, and I still remember to this day, man, um, my fifth and sixth grade teacher, because I went to PS 75 right there on 96 of Broadway, Mr. Brennan. He was like, I have to say that this guy changed my life. Because in fifth and sixth grade, like his class, I didn't want to go to his class because it was like kind of named like the difficult you know, class to be in. Yeah. But anyway, long story short, he went and took a principal position at a middle school. And, I, and he took me with him. And then when I went, that's when it all kind of came together for me. And so for me also, though, I had, I had an older brother. I have an older brother who was um, also part of like this program called the Dome Project. Okay. The Dome Project was basically like a program for kind of at-risk youth um, and giving kids an opportunity to kind of go a place to go study. But also if they really wanted to study, they also had an opportunity to go to prep school. Okay. So... So my brother and a bunch of his friends that grew up got a chance to go to boarding school, and I became aware of that um, as I got older in junior high school, and I went to the same program. So I went to uh, Lawrence Academy in Groton, Massachusetts, man, as a 13-year-old. So coming from being in New York City, which obviously, man, it's like unlike any other environment in the world. Yes. <laughs> so coming from living in... Manhattan to yeah. going to school in Massachusetts. What was that like? That transition. It was. It was a, definitely a culture shock because you're coming from. I mean, like you just just said. I mean, New York is so diverse. The neighborhood I grew up in. I grew up around Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Haitians, Jews. I mean, everything. Right. So it, it, it was nothing that I wasn't exposed to. And then here, I get uh, you know placed in Groton, Massachusetts. Uh, and it's a very homogenous environment. Uh, and, you know, economically, uh, a clear difference. Just, again, come from the neighborhood I came from, you know, there were people that were wealthy that lived on Riverside, but then there was people that lived in Douglas Projects. Yeah. And there, so there was always that mix of, and I was kind of in, in between, middle, middle, you know, middle class, what have you. So, but going to, to Lawrence, it was, it was no middle class. It was... The upper class and super upper class. Right, and, right. And then that was that. And so that was a little interesting. But I think for me, I've, I've always been myself. And 
I think sports and, and basketball in particular for me was always kind of like that, that common denominator or that, that thing that allowed me to kind of connect and relate to people. Now, did you, you know? did you play? I did. I did. Yeah, yeah. I grew, okay. up, I grew up in the city playing ball. I, I played ball at Riverside Church. Okay. Um, nice you know, with it? Oh, I, you know, I, listen, I, <laughs> I do my thing, you know what I'm saying? You know, you got to check the resume. Okay. Um, uh, but, you know, play with Kenny Anderson. You know, oh, wow. Me, me and K.A. As, as young AAU kids. Matter of fact, there's a story with me and K.A., and we talk about it to this day. Uh, what, what's the story? Well, when, when I first met uh, Kenny, I was playing for uh, Central Baptist Church, which is another church, you know, program, and we were playing in this tournament, Stone Gym which is next door to Riverside Church. So Stone Gym was like the popping tournament. So you had Riverside, Gauchos, all these teams that would play. So Central Baptist, we played against Riverside. And that was, you know, Kenny Yang. And like, they was always talking about this kid, like, because he, like he was a child prodigy, like, back in the days. But I really didn't know about him, but like, whatever. But as, the, as a competitive cat, we get it in. So I was kind of, I was the man on my team. And he was the man on his team. And it was like a, a, it was an epic one-on-one battle where, I mean, I can admit, I, I, I went for like 42. And okay. He, and he, he probably had about 48 or 50. Okay. But it was. Yo, yo you nice with but, it. But, but, but we, we went at it. And, and he said to me, he was like, he was like, yo, when you came, he, he goes, nobody ever came at me like how you was coming at me. So, <laughs> so I got hyped when you was coming. Like, and it was, it was crazy. So we went back and forth. As a matter of fact. After that game, though, the coach from Riverside came up to me, Coach Honeybun, and he was like, man, what you doing next week? I was like, I'm just, you know, he's like, come to the church. We're having tryouts. And so, boom, I went, and that's when I, you know, joined the Riverside Church team, and that's what actually gave me exposure to traveling because that was, you know, during that time, Riverside and the Gauchos, they had money, so we was traveling to the West Coast. We was going to L.A., we was flying to Phoenix, you know. We was we was doing it, and also had uh, Malik Sealy, rest yeah, in peace. Yeah. He was on my team. We we had a crew, man. We had my man Garfield Smith went to Maryland, uh, Gordon Winchester, Seton Hall. Um, I mean, we had some cats that that really did it. Now I, I ended up going to Cornell. I, I I didn't reach the you know high level, but you know we were all Division One cats. That, and it's a very fine institution. That, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. No, absolutely. I think I made no the right shame. choice. I think I, think I made the right choice. <laughs> The way it ended up, but uh, yeah, no, it's you know, basketball's in the blood, man, and so it is. Um, so yeah, basketball was a tool for me to kind of go to you know Lawrence, but also you know I was a good student as well. So did you know that you were? Did you ever have in your mind that you would be involved in athletics and but that that would always be a part of your life? No, not at all, man. Uh, I would say growing up as a kid, like I was fortunate. To, uh, I, mean, I love sneakers, right? That that was a a thing, um, and so. But also, where I grew up was kind of the crossroads between that I would describe as like hip hop and sports. And what I mean by that is, when you went to play basketball at the park I went to go play at, it was called the Goat Park. Romanico. So Romanico. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It was the Goat Park. So that was where. Back in the days, they used to get their bump on in the goat park. Like that was a, a spot where cats from uptown or whatever come and play. But that same park was also known as Rock Steady Park. Okay. So the Rock Steady crew, you yep, know, the, Rock the, Steady the, crew, Rock, Rock Steady, 
boom. So, so, so you got these two worlds that are like colliding. So if you were a breaker or whatever and you wasn't really into basketball, well, you would still go to that park to chill with, you know, Frosty Freeze, Doze, and all them catches doing their thing. But at the same time, you got guys like Mario Ellie, three-time NBA yeah, yeah, world yeah. champion. Houston Rockets. Houston Rockets. Spurs. Group in my building. Oh, get out. Group in my building. Yeah, I, didn't, yeah, yeah. I didn't know he was a New York cat. He was a New York cat. Didn't know that. So I passe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> my man, Mario, shout out. Uh, also, my man, Bobito Garcia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grew up in the same building. He's killing it right now. He's on NPR. He's killing it. Absolutely. That's, that's love Bobby though. I'm, I'm, I'm subscribed yeah. to the show. Love them. I love it. And, and that's fam. So like all of us, like so that park was a special park, like in, in a lot of ways. And so going back to your question, did I know I was going to be in this world? Absolutely not. I mean, when I graduated from Cornell, I actually was uh, the first job I was doing. I was delivering newspapers. It was tight out here in these streets. It was tight. Economy was, you know, but. You know, I was committed to like, I, I got a degree, I got to work, can't yeah. be living off of moms, so whatever, you know, hold your pride. So, um, but I didn't know what I was going to do, and then I had a couple of other jobs in between where I was a social worker, and then um, I worked for, uh, as an investigator for a public defender service ha- up in Harlem, okay. doing that stuff, and then um, the whole time, I was still playing ball in the street, you know, street ball with, uh, in tournaments. And so I was playing in the league, um, what was it called? Asphalt Green on, on the east side. And actually, Bobito was on my team. There was a lot of cats that we were still playing. There was another uh, guy on the team who had worked for Nike at that point in time. And I was just kind of like, yo, how do you how do you get a job at Nike? Yeah, and what time period is this? Like, This is, I would say, I'll tell you, this is like 1994-ish. Okay. Yeah, okay. 94. I graduated in 93, maybe 95 or whatever. It's also prime, prime Nike time. Prime. Prime Nike. Oh, oh, Nike's popping, popping. Like, this is where it's at. That's why, like, when he's telling me he's working for Nike, I'm like, how do you get that job? Yeah. So he was just kind of like, hey, man, if you don't have any marketing experience or sales, it's probably kind of difficult. And I was like, wow, that kind of stinks. But then I just kind of stayed on him or whatever, whatever. And then finally he had... He had said, and then my other boy, um, who was a little bit younger than me, but he had been in, uh, connected to Nike, and I told him what I was doing, and he connected me to the person that was running the Eakin program. So that's where I started, and that that gave way to me to kind of becoming an Eakin because I then, although I was working my regular job, I started moonlighting and shadowing this other dude in his job as a Nike employee. So Nike had an office here in New York. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But they've they've always been in in Oregon. Oregon. Yes, always in Oregon. But what what offices? Like, what were the the day to day duties of the offices here in New York? It was mainly marketing, and uh, and then they had a sales office out in Long Island. Okay. For accounts to come out and see, you know, the product and all that stuff. And what was the. Uh, like what's like the early story? Explain what the Eakin program is. So the Eakin program is Nike spelled backwards. If you haven't figured that out, and it really is the entry level, and the whole thing is like it's you learn you know the company inside out, forward and back. That's why they call it you know Eakin kind of deal. And so it's it's a, a you know uh, um, a position where um, I worked in New York and covering the five boroughs in northern New Jersey, and I was a technical rep. So I would just educate people on why Nike running shoes were better than the competitors and talk about the airbag and the benefits of air. Um, I was an ambassador where, where, hey, 
you know, Jason Kidd is, is wearing this new shoe, so you guys should know who to talk about. And so it was kind of that. So working in kind of with the sales team, uh, you know, when the product team would come in from Oregon, they want to travel and, and kind of hit the hot spots in New York. Well, I would be their tour guide, you know, wow. take them to the 155th Street, you know. You got, you know, uh, these Caucasians coming in from Oregon who are not very comfortable going up to Harlem. And so, uh, you know. There was no Clinton then. There was no Clinton then. There was no Clinton. <laughs> but, you know, they had a pass when they came, you know, with the people. You so, you did you major in marketing at Cornell? I didn't. I didn't, actually. I, my, my major at Cornell, I was in industrial labor and relations. Wow. So I wanted to be a lawyer. That was what I wanted to do. And then after three years, I, didn't, I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. But I had too many credits. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't transfer them without delaying my exit from college. So I just said, let me just finish up my curriculum and then I'll figure it out from there. So yeah, it was kind of like, I won't say luck, but I mean, I guess you you network and you, you, you kind of gravitate toward the things that you're interested in. And so I would say playing basketball was clearly an interest and then connecting um, one of my teammates who's, who's working for the company and then having the courage and to kind of ask and, you know, find out and, and not taking no for an answer and figuring out how to navigate. Um, and then that was, the, that was, that was all she wrote. Once, once I got into Nike, that, that kind of paved the way kind of for everything else I've, I've done, you know, since, uh, since starting on Nike. Cause, uh, how did you find out that you were going to be accepted to the Econ program? So, um, what happened was, again, I, I, I was shadowing, one of the uh, the regional Eakins, and he had said, hey, listen, there's a position that opened up. One of the Eakins is leaving. I put your name in a hat to, you know, to interview. So I was, you know, at the time going against, you know, people that were managers at, at a Foot Locker, you know, working in, in that sneaker space, and a couple other, and maybe another guy from the athlete's foot. Um, I didn't have that kind of training, Um but I, I guess my, my Cornell background or whatever helped. So anyway, I interviewed, and, you know, it, it was, um, I, I, got, I got the phone call. I got the phone call. I was at my house with my mother, and uh, it was, like, the happiest day of my life, you know, because I remember actually rehearsing because I had to give, like, a, a presentation yeah. for the interview, and I remember the morning in, uh, uh, rehearsing in front of my mother so she could hear me, and I was, you know, practicing, and so... For that to come to fruition, you know, after uh, doing that with her, it was like, it was amazing, right? It was like one of those, like being a kid in a candy store, like, what? I just got a job with Nike? Are yeah. you kidding me? What? And I'm only 20-something? And out the gate. Yeah, I mean, two years out of removed from college, I guess, yeah, that, that's out well, the gate. I mean, out the gate being with professional experience, like, this is a company that is, yeah, like, Hot too at that time. It's like it's like joining Bad Boy. Yes, in like '96. Yes, like scorching fire, fire, fire. I, I had no idea. The thing about it too was like, I didn't even know that you can get a job in a sneaker company. Like, like what did you? I mean, I wore them all the time, but I never thought about like, well, who makes the color on that shoe? Who's designing it? Where did the materials come from? Like, these are things that I just didn't think about. Yeah. And now you know, obviously being in this industry, it's like. Yeah, go figure. Like, there's somebody that does every little thing that you're wearing, and that's somebody's job, and they get paid for it. So, that's pretty dope. And what was your first day like? Gosh, what was my first? I, you know, let me see if I can remember. I, it was, 
I met a, I met a bunch of cool people. We uh, they, they flew us out to Oregon for like an orientation and getting us because we had this things called Nike Universities. Yeah. So we had to kind of like get this training and you know there's a there's a there's a method to how we you know do this thing. So it was a little intimidating because there's a lot of smart people you know around and you're like, damn, okay. Everybody people are cool and you know they're athletes but they're they're really smart too. So it was. It was good, but it was it was a it was an, it was uh, it was more diverse than I thought it would be. So there was a couple of cats that I saw. Like, oh, all right, you know, women, men, people of color, um, and it was it, I think you know Nike you know did a good job from a representation standpoint of of you know hiring uh, a diverse mix of, of people, and I think they benefited from that because it, a lot of the great things that have happened for the company I think has come from insights. Uh, of people having this kind of diverse backgrounds. Of culture. Of culture. Totally. Totally. Of culture. And so I like to think that I was uh, a part of that. And uh, But no, it was great. It was great. Like, it was it was fun. I mean, I, I got to go to the, the Nike store to pick out, you know, my, my gear, get my footwear. Like you, yo, you know, your, no, shoe, no, no. yo your, your sneaker game had to oh, be insane. Bananas. Bananas. Actually. Like, you, you, so growing up in the suburbs, there was always uh, the, whenever your friends got a job at the mall. Mm. That person was supplier for all the crew, right? You had to be that times like twenty thousand. Oh my god! Like forget the Foot Locker gig. Oh like, my no, god! I got the, I'm the plug. I was everybody's best friend, man. Of it course, was, it, was, it was nuts. It was nuts. I love you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate. If that, I have a man. son, man. <laughs> Yo, Mike Parker, Cambridge. That sounds nice, though. Yo, oh, the yo, plug. Yo, hey, listen. Hey, man. <laughs> If I'm connected, you connected, man. Uncle Mike. All day. All day. Uncle Mike. Yeah, and I'm, a, and I'm an uncle six Godfather, times over. uncle. All that. All, all that. that. Best man. <laughs> you are that. And so, uh, explain, like, what was your first, like, job or, like, or assignment with Nike? Like, what was your oh, first big task? I would say the first big task was my, um, giving my, uh, my training presentation on the benefits of Nike Air. So, it was... Uh, it was a Foot Locker in northern New Jersey at the Garden State Plaza Mall. And uh, so we had to do these clinics early in the morning before, you know, people would come to this, you know, to, to shop. So we had to get the managers and the workers. So I'd, you know, get there like 8 in the morning. The store would open like at, at 10. And it was like my first, you know, my bosses there. And I got my little trinkets to, to demonstrate, you know, the, the benefits of air and all that. And I'm just like... Okay, I hope I don't sound stupid, but uh, you know I'm kind of sweating. But I but I get up there and I'm in front of about about twelve associates, and uh, yeah, you know, I just kind of just, just roll into it. Hey, I'm you know Mike Parker, the Nike guy, and I want to talk to you about the benefits of air today. And here's why you should that 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 that. And you know that kind of kind of broke my cherry from that perspective. And then uh, after that, it was it was all it was all easy. I mean, different environments we did. These Nike universities with 50, you know, managers or what have you. And then we did the small intimate ones. But that was that was the biggest kind of thing because you present a lot. Like presentations are critical at, at Nike. Even with, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you're obviously the expert to know. But even with the, um, with Jordan, I think there was a period after the Jordan Two, mm-hmm. where there was a period where he made was thinking about leaving the company, and they brought in Tinker. Oh yeah, to um, give a presentation. Yes, with the Jordan Three, 
Yes. So I guess maybe even from that, from the, Nike's always been a big presentation company. One hundred percent. I remember. Uh, I think it was a, something on Netflix where they talked about that. Uh, oh, I know who you talk about designers. Yeah, 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 yeah. The that Netflix was, documentary, yeah, and it was on. Uh, they had a segment on Tinker. Yeah, and he yeah. was explaining how like. There was a, a point there where, where Michael was going to leave after the two. Totally. They brought in Tinker, and then he gave a big presentation on with the shoe, but also the, the jumpsuit yeah. to match yeah. the gear. Yeah. So the I whole... definitely can understand how. Totally. Whew. Totally. Because it, it, it's, it's millions of dollars on stakes. Absolutely. That, that, that's a game changer right there. And clearly, you know, Tinker uh, had an impact on that. And so that's, that's just the nature, man. Like, you know. Any, that's what I was saying. Like, there was a lot of talented people at Nike, so like, presenters were like, like a, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. Like, you could not be a good worker, but if you could present, <laughs> yo, you were good. Man. You were good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. It was like so much value placed on it, but uh, but yeah. So it's it's one of those things. But that I, I definitely thank Nike for kind of forcing me out there to kind of do those things because you know. Public speaking is not everybody's favorite thing to do. Yeah, for and, sure. And, you know, if you want to have any success, you, that's part of the mix. You got to, you know, talk to people and be convincing and uh, charismatic or persuasive and, and whatever it takes. So that's what uh, one of the many things that, that Nike had, had done for me. Now, how did you get involved with the, with the Air Force One sneaker? Because it's a shoe that's been around since 82. 82. There you go. 82. So get, give me a little backstory. Mm-hmm. On for our listeners who may not be aware of the history right. of the Air Force One sneaker. Yeah, well, the Air Force One was uh, created and designed by Mr. Bruce Kilgore. So he's the man that, he's the hamburger. He, he made the burger. Um, and, yeah, it was the first basketball shoe with air. Um, it was encapsulated air. And, um, you know, if you guys remember the the, the the Air Force One poster with all the cats standing. I think it was Bobby Jones, and so they all those guys. It was a, you know shoot worn by the NBA. But what happened was um, when the Air Force One first came out, it wasn't it, it didn't it didn't pop off like it, it actually really didn't sell that well, and it kind of went into like but certain retailers that had it kind of kept it and it became like a. As known as dead stock. I don't know if that's even exists anymore. But so there was a guy down in in, in Baltimore. Uh, uh, what was his name? Named Rudos. Rudos. He he had like a, a a stack of Air Force Ones that that were just there. And so so although he, he was a collector. No, no, no. He 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 owned the store. I'm sorry. He had a store. It okay. Called, it was called Rudos. Okay. Okay. It was an athletic store, like an Army and Navy store or whatever. But it was you know Mr. Rudos down down in Baltimore D.C. and you know it became known that he he had the only kind of like stocks of Air Force Ones on the East Coast. So New York gets credit you know for the Air Force One as yeah. like you know the, the the New York shoe, but depending on who you talk to, because they had the other cat up in the Bronx, Jew Man, mm-hmm. that also had. Some dead stock Air Force One. So depending on who you talk to, the time frame, there's a little debate as it relates to did the Air Force Ones get popped off in Baltimore with Mr. Rudos? Because there were cats coming from New York, right. driving down to Baltimore to get to get these Air Force Ones. Yeah. So that that's a real scenario. But Jew Man had some stuff too. So that that's kind of a it's debatable. Okay. In in, in, in the uh, 
sneaker history. Folklore. Kind of folklore, exactly. But yeah, no, I mean, it just became, and then for whatever reason, it just caught fire and just became this staple shoe that... Because if I'm not mistaken, uh, the story of, of Air Force One kind of reminds me of Timberland, where there mm. wasn't any marketing dollars spent. So oh, there were no Air Force One ads. There were no Timberland ads Mm-mm. where there was this like cult following because Timberland was in Massachusetts. Right. And right. so right. It, it got picked up really big through drug culture. It was yes. the same way Air Force One's a culture sneaker. Yes. yes Timberland yes. became a culture boot. Absolutely. So, so when you're out there selling drugs yeah, the in the cold, is, like, yeah, yeah, the streets was on it. Yeah. So they yeah. were driving back and forth from New York to Massachusetts to get these Timberland get boots. Get these Timberlands, absolutely. And so the story of Air Force One kind of reminds me. Yeah. Yeah. Of that story, I can see that absolutely. No, I mean there was definitely, you know, listen, you know, drug culture has, has played a, a, a major influence in fashion uh, for many, many years, and you know, going from the fur coats into the, you know, gator shoes or whatever, like all the hustlers, you know, yeah, they set the set the tone, and it was no different than sneakers. It's like even like you look at New Balance in Baltimore, like New Balance is like. A huge shoe in Baltimore because because of the drug culture. Right. It's it's hands down. You know. Again, just one one of the better shoes in that in that marketplace. But yeah, no, Air Force One was um was was just that as well. And and where was the the turning point with the Air Force One as far as gaining like real popularity? Like, what was that point where Nike realized like, yo, I think we got something here with this shoe from '82 that, yeah. I, I, I got to say, you know, um, so before I, I took on the gig, there was another guy before me, and I think he, he, he did a good job of capturing, because that, that's when the momentum's like, like when videos were really starting to, to crack, and so I think that, that had to be like around... I want to say like 96, okay. 94, 96. And then, and then when I took over, it was like, it was in the heyday. It was, it, it, it just like, it was just, you couldn't keep it because like the white, white and the black, black Air Force One were like, it was like crack. And, and <laughs> it truly was. No, no, no. Honestly, my memory of the Air Force One was like, yo, the first day of school, if you even had creases in your joints. Oh, yeah. Like it was a, a truly like a, almost like a crack epidemic. Yeah. Of then the, I remember um, MTV Cribs. Uh huh. And I never forget the Joe Fat Joe. Uh huh. The Fat Joe episode where he goes and he licks the bottom of his Air Force One. <laughs> and it was those type of things yeah, that like yeah, yeah, created yeah. this those were mystique around moments. The, how did you get placed on the assignment for that show? So you know I was doing um, at the time. Uh, basketball apparel for Nike. So like I said, I finished kind of completing this whole battlegrounds concept or what have you. And and what um what happened, I, you know, I was looking to diversify, you know, my experience. So at that point in time I was I was an Eakin. I'd been I'd been a sales rep at Nike, so I was selling stuff at Nike. Now I was on the apparel side. So now I'm touching apparel and making clothing. And then, you know, footwear was always kind of like the end game destination because that's, you know, I love shoes. And so that was um, the opportunity was there. So it was kind of like they were looking for somebody 
um, who had a, you know. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fashion sensibility. Uh... I think it helped that I was from New York um, just because of where, you know, the business that I was running. From Uptown, by the way. From Uptown. Yeah, up the west side. Up west side. Uptowns. Up, uptowns, yes. In yes. Virginia, we call them flaves. You call them flaves? Flaves. Because they come <laughs> multiple flavors. Yes. Like, was it like a, a Baskin Robbins? There you go, the flaves. Yeah, yes. That's where, that's where it comes from. <laughs> oh, that's where it comes from? That's where it comes from. Okay. Okay. Well, there it is. It's, it's very unique to Virginia. I've never, I've never heard that. Yeah, flaves. Okay. Well, Uptowns and Flaves. Yep. After, what do they call them? Be more. I forget. But um. But yeah. No. No. So I. Uh, I um. The, op- the opportunity presented itself, and so I was kind of like, yeah. You know, if you look at where well, the business was happening, well, where New York was the epicenter. Yep. You know, then there's D.C., Baltimore, Philly, Boston. Like you have a, you know, what they call the I ninety five corridor, mm-hmm. right? So this was my backyard. This is where I'm from, and. I get to now work on a product that is from my blood, if you will. Yeah. And so, so it was, a, it was like a perfect match, and you know, I'd already had a good experience, you know, kind of working through the different uh, groups. I had apparel in my background, and so, yeah, that was it. They, you know, brought me on board, and then um, started just getting a chance to kind of go in a candy store. Now, the thing about it is that not only did I get to play with the Air Force One, but I got to play with like the Bo Jackson, the, the Max 95, uh, the original Hirachi, uh, Max 90s, uh, you know, Pippins. So I, 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 had to, I, had to, I got a chance to touch all those things. Now, Air Force One was the, was the workhorse and all that. Um, and so, you know, my thing is, uh, I can say my, my claim to fame as it relates to that is the creation of the Puerto Rican Air Force One. And so, there's a point here. I just a little research on you. Okay. Oh, okay. So, okay. Okay. In your first year, you you went you generated twenty million dollars worth of revenue. Yes. Um. So from thirty million to fifty million. Yeah. Um. On the Air Force One product. Yeah. How did that happen? Like, what goes into the, the what was the strategy behind making that growth happen? Yeah, I would say. I mean, I don't, don't want to say uh, it's really rocket science, but. One of the things I had some good teachers, some some older gentlemen at the, at Nike, and one of the things he talked about was kind of demand, right, and allocating product, right, and so that wasn't really a a term like you usually as a salesperson you sell as much as you can, 
and get it while you can, right? So, so there's really no discipline because you don't know when it's going to happen again, right? So yeah. that's typically the sales mentality. Um, so, so really there was a sales strategy, first of all, in terms of like we knew that we had a coveted product. Um, we probably knew we, we could have sold a lot more, but because we created a limited amount, it created more of a frenzy. And, and what it allowed us to do is to do gradual uh, growth versus kind of exponential growth on something that we knew that was phenomenal. So, but it also took, you know, the insight to kind of understand like, okay, we know that, uh, you know, white, white Air Force Ones are people waiting for those in the springtime. So we're going we to we go dark. We're going to starve the market, you know, wintertime, that, that, that. But, you know, come February 1st, you know, the white one, the, fl- the flood's going to come on. Yep. And it goes from, like, February maybe to, like, September, October, whatever. But so that was, like, the, the core, right? So that's your... Your bread and butter. That's just you don't think about it. And then in between, pardon me, interrupt. Before you came on board, was the colorway just black and white? No, 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 no. Air Force One did come in like a white navy, a white red. Because um, at, at what point in the game did they start doing different colorways? So right, right around the time when I was in, in there, that, that's when we started doing. Changing the uh, the material on the swoosh, uh, going from a leather swoosh to a jewel swoosh, mm. uh, popping color on the outsole. Um, we were popping color in the collar. We were, uh, you know, changing the actual going from a, a leather suede to like a canvas, and you know, leather mix. So that, that's when we started experimenting and kind of like pushing it, and at the same time. What was going on too was like uh, there, there was a lot of people doing their own customized Air Force Ones with the whole Louis Vuitton and like the aftermarket stuff that was like really pushing the envelope. So it was forcing me to kind of like, okay, how do we, you know, we're not, we're not going to get the Louis Vuitton material, but how do we kind of make what we're doing, you know, sexy in order to kind of compete? But there was a, you know, a status associated with the Louis Vuitton or the, Chanel kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Prince or what have you. But yeah, no, that, that was where we were just having fun with, with colors, materials, and just not limiting ourselves. Uh, you know, we had to look at price in some ways because uh, you had to be cognizant of, again, you're trying to commercialize a product to make sure everybody can access, you know, have accessibility to it. But you don't, you also don't want to ostracize, you know, your, your, your audience because you're way too high in price. Right. So, so yeah, no. So we just kind of like, just just had fun, man. Just took things and like we did, we did like a denim Air Force One. I did a, I did the, the, the Air Force One with Rasheed Wallace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Air Force One when he was balling them joints. Exactly, my man. The, the, the first ones I did was the candy apple red joints that he wore at the All Star Game in DC. Get out. That That's was crazy. Yes, yes. No, man. Like that. That was, you know. Again, but he he's always was wearing them, and then we was like. Yo, Rashid, let's let's, let's make, do this. Just make yes. it, yeah. <laughs> and I remember going to his house in Portland. And he was playing for the Trailblazers, and we sat around, you know. And he's a simple dude, real. If you look at all the colors, they were real basic. There was nothing, you know. We did a North Carolina color. Yeah. We did the we did a black and white patent one to kind of do with the, the Trailblazers. So he was he was easy. But that stuff like that is where it became kind of fun to kind of do 
what I like to say is collaborations, if you will. You know what I mean? Where if you look at what collabs are like today, you know, I guess you can consider Michael Jordan a, a collab too, but you know what I'm saying? Like but they're, was, they're a little more common today. They're like, more common, I, yeah. Right, like at that time, no, collaborations no. weren't really happening with like in that type of context. No, not at all. Not at all. And so for, for an idea, let's say, for instance, you're, you have this idea of, let's say, the, the Denim Air Force One. Mm-hmm. How does that idea come from your head and mm-hmm. to actually being made into a, an actual product? So is there like, are you working with a designer? Does the marketing team go to the designer? Or how does that really no, I'm, work? I'm, I'm going to keep it real, man. There was, there was no... When I was doing it, now it's different. Mm-hmm. They do have designs. Because right now, it's called, when I was doing it, it was called Limited Edition. Mm-hmm. At Nike, it's now called NSW, so Nike Sportswear. Gotcha. So it's a huge, like, huge machine. When I was doing it, literally, it was myself, and I had a developer and a colorist. But I would double as a colorist as well, but we had a trained colorist who would kind of, you know, go look at the trends and have all these different Pantone boards. But at the end of the day, you know, I would be choosing the colors that I thought was most relevant and made sense because I was looking at what was going on in the apparel world, right? And academics, rockerware, you know, fat farm, all those kind of, you know. So for me, it was like, you know, denim was always an important part of the wardrobe for the consumer, right? So every cat had different types of denims that was out there. So it was like, oh, how do you, you know, and then cats are wearing denim with sneakers. And so it's like, okay, we should probably do like a, a little version and, you know, add, add some denim. So at the time, I forget what the G- denim company was, but uh, there, there, there was a particular kind of denim like finish that I was like, yo, it has to be something that's a little bit, that's going to work across multiple denims, right? Because everybody has their own little version. And so what I did to my, when I developed, I was like, yo, got to pair these denim jeans. It's like, oh, how do we, I want to put this, you know, on the swoosh and on the, you know, sock liner, uh, not just something, I mean, the collar lining mm-hmm. of, of the uh, of the shoe. And they was like, okay, well, these jeans are like, you know, they're not part of any materials that, that we work with any factories on. So we had to kind of go and try and match the, the jean print with a local uh, vendor that we use with one of the, the uh, factories to kind of replicate it. But so it's like a, so that either the, um, the material guys would have to knock off, you know, the the denim color and all that, and then, then that's how that's how it really kind of came to life. So it's like taking that and then sending out that sample. The factory kind of um, you know comes back with you know different executions, and we look at you know different variations. So we had like a stone wash finish, we had a a regular you know denim blue jean finish, and then you know I just sat down with my developer, and then I and then I take that product though too. And, and go shop the marketplace, right? So I just don't do it in a vacuum. So we'll do these samples, get these bags, and then hit the streets. So then I, I'll have like, and cats back in the days will tell you, I would show up with big, giant duffel bags, and I'd be right there on 125th Street at the Jimmy Jazz or Dr. J's at the time, throwing out shoes and having kids like give me feedback on it. And so I would do that. I'll come to New York. I would spend time in DC. I would do it in Baltimore. I'd go to Atlanta. Wow. I was going. I'd go to LA. So I would do it with Chicago. Because to me, because I, I was building a line for the entire country, so I couldn't just be limited. But I knew that a lot of the action was going to be on the East Coast. So I know if I got the East Coast 
popping, then everything else will fall in line. But that's how I would find out. So I, I can't just say I just sat there and I had the crystal ball and everything I dropped was popping. Like I got validation from being in the streets. And I feel like that is something, at least now, I, I don't really see that happening as much. Like product people, you know, talking to consumers, getting feedback. And obviously because it's maybe the, the digital age and people want things fast. And But that, that was how um, a lot of the stuff that, that I did um, kind of worked and became successful. And it was just talking to the people and, and as well as looking at, you know, like I said before, going what was happening on the apparel side, urban apparel, because Nike didn't really have any cool apparel that cats really wanted to rock in the same way they want to rock, you know, um, FUBU or, right. or, 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 like I said, Fat Farm and the Rockaway. And so I would even, you know, the cats that I, or Echo Unlimited. So I used to like, you know, connect with my man Coltrane Curtis when he was at Echo. Yeah, yeah, like, yo, Coltrane, what's, what's going on in your mic? What, you, what colors you got? What we doing? We, we dying? This, yeah, let's, let's, let's get it. You know, same thing with academics. So there was like a, there was a cultural thing, you know, in terms of, you know, understanding what's driving the business, right? The shoes is driving the clothes. The clothes is driving the shoes. The shoes. You know, people want to kind of, you know, feel this energy. And and so that's, you know, where a lot of the, you know, things that, that I worked on kind of came from. So, so you're not all the way Ray A. Kroc. Like, you're, you're also working in some ways of, like, designing and coming up with ideas and creating... Concepts, shoes, yes. Concepts, yes, yeah. yes. I, I know, I, I, absolutely. And and like I said, though, the, you know, one of the concepts was the uh, you know the Puerto Rican Air Force One. T- tell me about that. So so now that um, you know, growing up in New York City, you know, the Puerto Rican Day Parade is every June, every year, and it's a, it's a big parade. I don't know if you've experienced yeah, it before, but it's it, it, it's 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 amazing. And but that was just kind of like second nature. For me growing up, like, uh, and you know, I had a lot of Boricua friends. Um, my uh, college sweetheart uh, was, was Puerto Rican, so I was, you know, I was connected to the culture. But it, it, it didn't hit me until I was actually obviously working at Nike, and and the, the, just the phenomenon of the Air Force. Everybody's rocking Air Force, what Air Force one. And then so it was one June. And like in the city, you know, everybody's in their car, they're waving a the flag, it's, it's this hyper. And like, I'm like, wow, there's so much pride. Like on this day, it, I mean, everybody getting hyped. And I'm like, and, you know, Boricuas, they, they like Air Force Ones. They, they rock it. Like it's, you know, you go to Spanish Harlem, cats, it's like you said, Fat Joe, he's licking his Air Force Ones. Licking, like, licking the like bottom. So I'm like, yo, there's something here. So I was like... So it was, it, was, it was kind of risky at that point in time. I kind of went back and it was like, it was unusual to, to like try and put a flag on a, on a shoe. Like that just didn't happen. And so, so before I did it though, I did go to um, Chicago. I went to this, uh, there, was a, there was a retailer out there at the time. It doesn't exist anymore. It's called Tony Sports. So Tony Sports was, they, they was hot in Chicago. Like they were, they were the go-to spot. And oh, I forget his name, but one of the, the retail associates, we were just talking, he was having, and, and Chicago has a large Puerto Rican population as well okay. there too. So we were talking about uh, shoe and all that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this, this uh, Puerto Rican Air Force One. He was like, yo, okay, that, that's, that's kind of dope. And I said, I got this flag thing and da 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 da. 
And then, you know, then he had said, he was like, yo, there's an animal in, in Puerto Rico that's indigenous to the island. And it's called, it's their equivalent of a cricket, but it's called the coquille. I was like, and it makes a noise, coquille, coquille, coquille. And so anyway, so I took that idea. And I was like, okay, let me put that in the mix. And then boom, took that, went back to Portland, Oregon. So I had the flag and all that stuff. And then just kind of did a sample. And then so I went to the sales uh, guy that handles the territory. I was like, listen, I'm just going to make 3,000 pairs. Let's just see like what happens. And we're going to buy it blind. So like nobody was, because usually Nike's is a future driven company. So, yeah. me, so meaning that, you know, they don't build anything unless there's orders against it, right? Okay. So that's what that means. So like, if, unless you're going to, you know, make sure you're going to buy it, we're going to build it. We, we built this blind. So there was no home for it. So really it was like, we're going to give it to a few sales reps and then you take it out and uh, let us know what happens. And so, so what happened was, the other thing too that happened is at the time, do you remember Big Tigger? Of course. Big yeah, Tigger, BT. The, the, the basement. Yeah, of course. So got it placed on Big Tigger for the basement. And he started like talking about the Puerto Rican Air Force One. He's like, yo, I got these dope, that, 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 that. And then after that, it was, it was crazy. So the shoe dropped, the 3,000 just blew out. It was crazy. And we were like, Oh shit! I think we, we got something here. Because where where did you send the three thousand shoes to specifically? What markets? New, the New York, New York market, New York, Chicago. So it was, it was a ticket. Obviously, was on a national platform. Yeah, yeah. It was only in New York City. Pretty much New York. Available. Pretty much New York and Chicago, because Chicago also had, uh, you know, like I said, a, a large you know Puerto Rican population. But it was majority New York, no question. There was a guy on 116th Street that got the most pairs. I forget his his name, but it it uh. Yeah, it flew out. It was it was off the hook, and then uh, later on, um, Big Pun had it in his in his video. I think at, at that point it might have been the uh, the Puerto Rican Air Force. It might have been like number two or number three. I forget because we cause we kept doing iterations after that. Every year it became an annual thing, and we had a float at the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Wow, that was in the form of the Air Force One shoe, and I was on the float. Wow. <laughs> when it was going down. So that it, it it was it was big. It was big. And then so like I said, a big pun had it on his video and it was crazy. We we, we laid it out and so that, that became us a, a regular annual Because that was thing. the first cultural uh product collaboration. I would say so, unless somebody can tell me differently. I, I think that yeah, that was the first cultural. Then after that I did the West Indies Air Force One for the Labor Day, you know. Jump off. Um, so yeah, so I think that that predates uh, any kind of cultural collaboration. I guess that's amazing. Well, thank you, man. It's you know, it's a long time ago, but that's still fun to talk about. So it's not just about the Air Force One. You also you're an, you're an extreme silent giant because you also worked with Reebok. I have yes, and you did. You were working with Jay. 50. 50. Pharrell. And you were, you were behind the S. Dot Carter and G-Unit? G-Unit. So, so to give you context, so when I started, they had already did like the first evolution of the, 
of the S. Dot Carter. Okay. So that, that predates me, and it said that that was the Gucci shoe that they did. Mm-hmm. That was the original Gucci that that came out, and then I came on board. It was on involved in every shoe kind of after that one. So we so we did like a we did an S. Dot Carter for um, what's my man that played for the Knicks? Man, uh, he was real Crawford. Crawford. Jamal Crawford. Jamal Crawford. Yeah, yeah. And then we did some other iterations, but yes, was 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 working on that. And then because um, you've done work for for Converse. Yep. Yeah. Which was owned by Nike. Which was, but but I was at Converse before Nike owned them. So when I was there, we got acquired. So I was part of the team. Gotcha. That got Converse nice and juicy for. Uh, for Nike to come by, and so, so then you went to Under Armour. I'm very intrigued by like your your time at Under Armour because yeah. this is where where you came into uh, Nike as the Air Force One was hot. Mm-hmm. You're coming into a brand with a brand new identity. Yes, um, yes. Looking to like make a imprint. Yes, into and compete with the giants in the sneaker industry. Yes, and so like. What was a part of the strategy of getting Under Armour like in the right direction? Because yeah. you're obviously starting with a Nothing. brand new company with no reputation Nothing. in the basketball market. At that point, they were doing um, like the dry fit. I knew Under Armour at that yeah. time was dry fit clothing. Yeah. Well, actually, actually it's, it's uh, because dry fit is actually Nike, but it's, um, what was it? Uh, just the tight, the tight stuff, right? The tight stuff, yeah. yeah. I just knew it as like yeah, the stuff football yeah, players wear. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Tight stuff, exactly. Yeah, no, it was. Um, you know, Under Armour was interesting because, in a lot of ways, when I got there, it, it really did remind me of Nike in terms of like the energy, the aggression, um, you know, kind of that 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 attitude, right? I mean. Because Nike hasn't wasn't always as big as it was. It was always like a renegade, you know, element to it, and you know, it's lost it, you know, now because it's so so big. But but Under Armour at that point in time really kind of spoke in that kind of language, and that was kind of attractive. So like, so for me, there was like there was a, there was an energy, and there was it's a real performance company. So that's that's half the battle, right? There's some authentic performance um, aspects that people kind of believe in, and that mainly came from the apparel side of things. And then the footwear was was a little bit more going to be a challenge, right? Um, and again, I was global brand director for basketball on the marketing side, so that's my that was my job. And so, you know, the, we we had a strategy in place that was at multiple levels. So the, so we had Brandon Jennings as a, as a pro athlete and validating. He was the first athlete. He was the first one. He was the first one. Now, was he there when you signed on? or No, no, no. Brandon was there, was there already Okay, before I got there. Okay. So Brandon was there um, and then soon afterwards uh, they had Grievous Vasquez. Mm-hmm. So Grievous who's a Maryland alumni. But then after that, like as soon as I, I think Kemba Walker started and then I came on board and then we had uh, Derek Williams. So okay. when I was there, it was like Derek Williams, Brandon Jennings, uh, Kemba Walker, and Grievous Vasquez. So I mean, love all those guys. You know, great, great NBA players. But then they're, they're not guys that are moving the needle, right? They're not moving. But what they did do is they validated the fact that we're can, here. You were here, and you can play in these shoes at the highest level, right? That that that's square one. And that's the we're doing a bare minimum. So that's like okay. 
And then we, you know, we, we had a, our college, you know, programs weren't, weren't that great because we were mainly, we had football colleges that happened to play basketball. Yeah. You know, because we were more of a football. So, so the programs we had weren't, weren't that great, but they were at least teams they were playing on TV and they were probably getting blown out. But boom. But, but where, not, where we did a really good job was at the grassroots level. That's where, where the rubber meets the road. Like we really, at that time, they, they spent money and kind of connecting with the future of basketball with these AAU programs. And if you know anything about AAU, it's an ugly business. Yep. Adidas is in it. Nike's in it. With Sonny, Sonny, um, Sonny Vaccaro. Sonny Vaccaro. He wrote the blueprint. So that was, that was a really um, important piece that, that kind of helped kind of keep us on track, keep us in the mix, keep us in the conversation, I would say. But um, the game changer came in, in 2013, um, and that's when we signed Stephen Curry. And, so Stephen, and, and how did that, like, how did that really come about? Also, too, Steph at this time isn't Steph that we know of today. Mm -mm. So you were kind of getting him really kind of early on. Like, the buzz hadn't already... It was gotcha. starting though, right? Right. It, it was. It was right. It was. Only, it was the perfect timing. They, they, kind, they kind of pulled a Jordan. Yeah. They kind of pulled a Jordan with Steph. Yes. Where where Jordan was <clears throat> not in the NBA yet. He wasn't number one in the league. He wasn't the most coveted college player. Right. Like you kind of Nike kind of hopped on Jordan totally early, invested in it. It just completely worked out. Totally. Um, and the same kind of happened with Steph, where Steph's game evolved. It totally did. But like right before the year we actually signed him, Steph had, he, he got snubbed by the, um, uh, for All-Star Weekend. Because he had, he was having a pretty pretty dope season that year, but for whatever reason he, he, didn't, he didn't make the All-Star game. And, but that's changed ever since. Since that time, he's he's gone on to make the All Star game. But like he was right at the cusp. But at that time, you know, Nike. That's the thing about it. They have such a large roster of athletes. They they can't market everybody. And you know, when you have LeBron, you have KD. You have the time Kobe was still the big you know big guy. And then they had already identified Kyrie Irving to be like next in line. So there was no space for Steph. So when the music stopped, there there was no chair for Steph. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so, you know, but that's a lot, that's that's what a lot of players. Do. I mean, you think about you know Paul George is a really good player. Like a lot of these guys, if they were on other brands, like they would be the feature, the guy right, 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 on the brand. But you know, because who who was it? You or another person in the company that eyed Steph and was like, yo, we should. It was I, it was more of a collective thing. Okay, you know what I mean. So we had a person that's in, you know handling sports marketing. I'm on, I'm on the brand marketing side. We have a product marketing person. So we we always like I mean every year at the draft we're trying to like we, we need to figure out to get somebody so we can be you know relevant. Yeah. You know right. what I mean. And so at the time we were looking within the draft, but then you got to kind of wait for for a guy to kind of pop off. You got to let it incubate. You know um, that's why we we picked. Kemba Walker, he was he was great, you know what I mean. But Kemba didn't start making, you know, he didn't make an All Star game until this past year, right? You know what I mean. But he, we knew that there was something there. But it's, uh, you know, within basketball, you gotta you gotta jump on it quick. So looking at existing guys, so Paul George was on that list, you know, Stephen Curry was on that list. So we all kind of had like a 
chalkboard. We had Blake Griffin. He was on that list. We had Blake come in. We did a presentation for him. So we had a lot of guys on the list. And, you know, Blake fell through um, for whatever reason. And, you know, Steph, it was um, just kind of kind of worked out because I think Nike kind of handed, handed to us because I don't know if you know the story, but when when Nike went to go present to Steph, but they had KD's image in, in the deck. Um, so he had the wrong deck. They didn't even have his name on there. Um, they kept calling him uh, Steven. Steven, right? And he doesn't like to be called Steven. He's, you know, Stephen, you know what I mean? And so there was just a lot of little knickknack things that, you know, I think that was, you know, a little bit of Nike's arrogance, you know, obviously. And so, they, I mean, he was open. He was very open at this point, like, hey, listen, you know, what do you guys got? And so, um, so yeah, I, I think the, the fact that he got equity in, in the company, that, that was very different, you know, it's very unorthodox. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking, yes, yeah. very unorthodox there because he couldn't really, you know, write the same kind of check that Nike could write, but, you know, the, the value of Under Armour and at he that also time wasn't what we know of him today. Correct. So Correct. it was even more of a risk because he's getting you're giving this athlete who's a, definitely a proven yeah. talent, yeah, no yeah, question, yeah. but not. It's like Justin Timberlake versus when he went solo. Exactly, <laughs> like he was hot, but he's crazy. Or now. Michael, once Michael dropped Tito, yeah, 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 it's yeah. exploded. He would have been there, you know. I mean, you can't predict that. No, you know, no, no. We got got very lucky, very great kid. Just just the salt of the earth. I mean. You know, I, that, that, that's one guy I miss working with there. He, he, he was just a pleasure. And just everything about him just, it just, uh, just made sense. And for him being an underdog, at least at that time, it just all just married up perfectly. Man. Like, this take, guy was took the not, words out of my mouth as yeah. far as he really represented. He re- we're, we're kind of, I look at what Jordan did for Nike. Yeah. Ni- he kind of became the prototype of what a Nike athlete is. Yes. Where a Nike athlete is almost like... Um, Goliath-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah They're very, yeah. Uh, extremely muscular. And mm-hmm. when I think of a Nike athlete, I think of a Bo Jackson. Yes. Extremely built. Built, rock side. You know? And Steph really kind of represented, to me, like, in the Under Armour brand, of like, the underdog, yeah. like, spirit. Because at the time, Under Armour was the underdog. That's right. Against That's Adidas right. and Nike. Totally. He was, you know? like, he was David. Yeah, he was David. David. He was David. He was David, man. And uh, he really went there and slashed him up. And uh, it, it was instant, you know what I mean? Like, honestly, you, that, that's a good example of where you can say that, yes, this person directly had an impact on the business. Like, there's no kind of, like, guessing or not, like, because our basketball shoes became immediately relevant as soon as he started. And the thing about it, because he related to young people, kids. Kids wanted to be him, and parents loved him. Yep. Right, so he had the perfect combination of this, like, you know, um, and the average kid is not, Gal- is not Goliath. The it's average not Goliath. kid is David. Is, is David exactly? Yeah. So there was a lot of things that's working like beautifully, and, uh, and yeah. What, what went into the strategy of, of of with Steph? Like, what was the was it like a market strategy that you had of like, okay, this is how we're gonna promote this guy? Like, what was your? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, everything I think we kind of just said in the terms of like, we're like, okay, you know, who are we? And what characteristics in, in Stefan kind of align with that? So how do we tell that story, you know, 
in a humbling kind of way without it being like in your face. And so the strategy with, with uh, Steph was always to kind of show him like putting in work, right? The, the doing the stuff behind the scenes that allow him to be phenomenal in front of the scenes, yeah. in front of the camera, yeah. right? And so it was just that, that you know, uncanny like work ethic and everything we did around him just kind of showed, you know, that, that essence and, and that grit. And so that's kind of was like, you know, with a common man, right? Like, so as long as you work hard, you know, you got to have some talent. Um, not everybody's going to be as great, but as long as you put the work in, you, you're going to get somewhere. And so I think that was kind of the message that, like you said, you know, you don't have to be gargantuan and, and physically gifted because not everybody's that, right? You're not born that way. But, you know, if you're just a regular size and you're, you're working hard. So so that was kind of like the, the mentality. So a lot of the the print work that we did, a lot of the, you know, YouTube like videos that we would shoot around him because we didn't have a big budget. We didn't, we didn't you know, we weren't doing you know big uh, you know time commercials except for his first shoe when we actually launched uh, that the one with Curry Jamie, one with Jamie Foxx. Curry one, Curry one, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the one. That's the first shoe that I launched, and that was like the the best selling shoe. Wow, at Under Armour at the time, it was hotcakes off the meter, and that's when I dropped the mic. So. So you, uh, I don't want to throw any numbers out there, but I'm going to throw some numbers out there. <laughs> uh, Mike Parker is responsible for taking the company uh, in basketball from 10 million to 100 million in revenue. Yes, that's true. In basketball, yep, across the board. Footwear, apparel, and accessories, yes. And that was in a, in a four-year period. Yeah, I'm going to hire you to run my life. <laughs> $10 a 10 mil. Hey, man, all day. <laughs> All day. I'm right here for you. Hey, my man. So uh, on this note, um, what has gotten you, before we, we close out, um, what has gotten you to this point? Man. Um, passion. Passion. Um, I hate to use the cliche hard work, but hard work is a part of it. But I would, I would even say like relationships, right? Those are, all those things are very important because, you know, who you meet on, on, your, on your journey is important because no one does it alone. Um, and when you have good relationships and you couple that, you know, with your passion, I think opportunities, you know, come along. Um, and, and I think for me, you know, I've just been real with myself about the things that I like what I'm interested in and I've just been fortunate to kind of stick in that world so whether it's basketball or hip-hop culture or music or lifestyle like it, I guess it just follows me or, or I follow it yeah. but one way or the other we're connected and so I think those are the, the things that kind of get me to where I am right now hey there we go <laughs> I, I think it's worked <laughs> I think it's worked my man Listen, I'm going to keep doing it till it doesn't work. Hey, so. can't stop, won't stop. Hey, there it is. Pete Bad Diddy. boy, baby. There it is. <laughs> All right, Mike Parker, man, thank you so much. Thank you, It man. is such a pleasure to like, meet you and have you on the show. No, this is dope. This is fun, man. Extraordinary story. <laughs> like, like, honestly, like, extraordinary story. Man, I appreciate true, that, A true man. silent giant. <laughs> You're the man. Thank you, man. Take care. Thank you so much to the silent giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants Podcast. 
This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at MBM Studios NYC. Also, the music for this episode has been brought to you by Obliv. Be sure to follow him as well on Instagram. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time.